We're just going to have one final word of prayer before we come to the preached word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, it is without a doubt a, a light to our path. Lord, it guides us, it keeps us in the right, and it corrects us when we are wrong. Lord, I do pray that you will open hearts this evening to receive your word. I pray, I pray Lord, that you will open ears, that people will listen. But Lord, I do pray that they will listen to you. They will hear the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you will help me, Lord, as I speak and deliver what is on my heart. But Lord, I pray above all these things that you will receive the glory for it. But Lord, as I go through this, that you will increase. But Lord, I will decrease and that you will receive all the glory that's due your holy name. Amen. We arrived at chapter 16 of Genesis. For the last few weeks now, we've been spending our evenings and on a Sunday going from chapter 12 to where we are now in chapter 16. Uh, and we've been looking how Abram has left his father's house. He's been called out by God to be separated from his family of old. He's to go to a land, the land of Canaan, and there he is to inherit that land. His descendants are going to take that land, and they're going to live there. This has all been promised to him. We see in chapter 13 that he arrives in Canaan. In chapter 14, we read about how his nephew Lot gets captive, gets, becomes a captive, and he delivers him from that. And then in chapter 15, which was last week, we had our assistant pastor John speaking on that chapter. And it was quite striking to me when he described it as the most or one of the most important chapters of the Bible. And I could completely understand where he was coming from when he said that. Just to recap very quickly on that, there's this scene in chapter 15 where the Lord tells Abram to take an animal, divide it into two, so literally cut it in two, put two pieces side by, or away from each other, which is a common thing to do in Abram's day, because this was a way of sealing a deal, as it were, sealing a covenant between two people, that the two people would walk in between the two pieces of animals. And the idea was, is that if either one of them broke the covenant, then what happened to the animal would happen to the one that broke the covenant. And you've got this incredible scene where Abram set out these two, this, these two pieces of animal and rather than him and God, as it were, walking through the middle, you've got this picture of God walking through the middle by himself. Because, as John reminded us, it's impossible for us to keep the covenant of God perfectly. But for God, he can do it. And what God was saying to Abram was that if I fail you, or if I fail your descendants, if I fail those that are going to inherit this land of Canaan, divide me in two, annihilate me. I am putting my deity, my Godhead, on the line. This is how serious I am about this covenant between me and you 
and your descendants. This incredible situation has just taken place. And between chapters 15 and 16, I believe there would have been a conversation between Abram and Sarai, where he was explaining to his wife, Sarai, you'll never believe what I've just been through. You'll never guess what's just happened to me. And he is explaining chapter 15 to his wife. And I think it is off the back of hearing that the Lord has promised these this, this descendants, that the, that the Lord has promised that this land is going to uh, belong to Abram's descendants, that she's starting to really feel the pressure of the situation. Sarah is very old. The chances of her giving birth, humanly speaking, are no poids, no chance. And she's very fearful of this. And this is what we see in verse six, at the beginning of chapter 16. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. This was weighing heavily upon her. She's thinking, well, the Lord's promising all this, and there's no children. I'm unable to bear children. It's panic stations. She's hitting the proverbial panic button in her, on her own heart. And what she does is she comes up with a really bad idea. A really bad idea. She's got this maidservant, this Egyptian maidservant, whose name is Hagar. And what her idea is, is that Abram is going to marry this girl, Hagar. And that through her, she's going to get pregnant. And the child that comes along as a result of that is she is going to adopt or steal that child from Hagar, claim it for her own, and bring it up. Now, to our modern ears, that sounds crazy. It sounds ridiculous. But actually, in those days, this was, this was fairly standard. For a woman to not be able to have children, to not conceive, was a dreadful thing. Now, obviously, with modern science, we are very much aware that it can be the man's fault, it can be the woman's fault. But back in this day, it was definitely always the woman's fault. That the woman, if the woman could not bear children, it was always her fault. And there was a tremendous stigma that was attached to this. So on top of all the promises that Abram's been getting from God, she's also got this horrendous stigma that's attached to her. And she comes up with this ridiculous plan to get the, a child via her maidservant, Hagar. And what is particularly sad is that she gets her husband's consent in this. He goes along with it. Now, we've all heard of the saying, desperate, desperate situations require desperate, or desperate, what's the saying? Desperate measures. Desperate times require desperate measures. There we go. That was, I should have written it down, shouldn't I? Desperate times require desperate measures. And that just strictly is not true when it comes to the things of God. The situation is desperate as far as Sarai is concerned, as I've explained. But the reality is, is that although things seem to be desperate, God has a plan. There is a better example, which is where is exactly what Sarai should have done. And it's that in desperate times, what you do is you go to the place of prayer. In 1 Samuel, we read about the lady Hannah, who is in a fairly similar situation as Sarai. In 1 Samuel, we read about Hannah who 
could not conceive. She couldn't have a child. What was worse, her, her husband also had a, another wife, a second wife, who was having children, was having no trouble. And what's worse is that the second wife was making life very, very difficult for Hannah. Verse 5 of 1 Samuel chapter 1 says this, but to Hannah he would give double portion, that is, her husband would give a double portion. For he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her room, a womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she was provoked by her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. But then what we read is what Hannah does as a result of this. In verse 10, she says this, And Hannah was in bitterness of soul and prayed and prayed. And this is what's required when we find ourselves in a situation where it seems like it's desperate. There's not a logical way out of this. You pray. You get before the Lord and you pray. What you don't do is try to work out another way, a way that does not involve God's way. You remove yourself out of God's will. And this is exactly what Sarai does. She proposes an alternative path away from the will of God to her husband, Abram. But it's always better to pray than to come up with your own solutions. Leave it to the Lord in prayer. In 1 Peter chapter 5, it's cast all your cares upon the Lord, for He cares for you. That's a promise given to God's people right throughout the ages that no matter how heavy the burden, no matter how strong the cares are, how difficult the situation might seem, the Lord says, come to me. Give me your burden. Give me your cares. And he, why? Because He cares for you. And this is sadly not what Sarai does, but she presents this ridiculous plan to Abram, and Abram heeds the voice of Sarai. We read that at the end of verse 2 in chapter 16, and Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. And the word heeded here, it's a little bit more than just that he listened. It was he deliberated over it. He heard what Sarai said, he thought about it, and then he went, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's, let's do that. And this is staggering. One, because you think of what Abram has just gone through. Chapter 15 has only just happened. He's had this incredible encounter with God, where God has re-emphasized in, a, in the most incredible way His promises to him. The land of Canaan is going to be yours. The, it's going to be your descendants. You're going to have the, as many descendants as the stars up in the sky. These are my promises to you, Abram. The next chapter, we don't know how long in time, but I can pretty much guarantee it's not that long into the future. He gets presented with this ridiculous plan, which is clearly outside of God's will. And he thinks about it, and he goes, okay, let's do it. That sounds like a good idea. You see, bad things happen when good men do nothing. Bad things happen when good men do nothing. And that includes 
woman as well, but for our situation, we have here Abram. And this is what we've seen throughout the, the recent generations. We had what in the 40s, at the end of World War II, we had the nation coming together in prayer to pray against Nazi Germany and the victory that was won as a result of prayer. There were miracles that took place uh, during World War II that can be only be put down to what the Lord has done. Yet from the 40s to here today, 2021, we're so far removed from any idea of being a spiritual nation, being a God-fearing nation. We've removed ourselves from what the Lord has done. And what has happened is that we've had a series of good men doing nothing. Fathers, grandfathers, brothers, mothers, sisters, grandmothers. Bad things being suggested, bad things being promoted, bad things being put forward as a good idea. And there's just been this silent agreement. There's just been this, okay, it won't. I remember listening to uh, an MP as they were voting on the law to allow same-sex marriage, and he had been there when they agreed to civil marriage for same-sex couples. <coughs> and as he was being interviewed, he was said, I was, I was told, I was guaranteed that if I voted for civil partnership for the same-sex couples, it would never get to this place. It would never get to the place where we are voting on marriage for same-sex couples. And I remember listening to that interview and thinking, my goodness, there's an MP. I don't know how much money he's on. I don't know what qualifications he's, at, he's got. But he's clearly a man that's meant to be a, a leader of this nation, a, certainly a leader of his constituency. <coughs> and really, he's done nothing. He's allowed this world, this nation, to kind of slip into doing wrong things. A bad idea was put forward to him. Civil partnership's a good idea for same-sex couples. Okay, I agree to it as long as this doesn't happen. Within his career, the very thing he said he was told wouldn't happen, happens. And there's many other examples that can be given of when people should have stood up and said, no, that's a bad idea, don't do that. There was silence. There was just an agreement to it. In Job chapter 2, we have a similar thing that happens when his wife, Job's wife, comes to him. And he says in verse 9, Job chapter 2, says this, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job said to his wife, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job called it out for what it was. He said, that's foolishness. And this is what Abram should have done. He should have immediately said, no, Sarai, that's, that's the wrong way. That's, that's not the right thing to do. Do you not see what the Lord is doing here? He's promising us. He's testing our faith. Hold fast. The Lord will do it. I mean, I've just told you about the, the miraculous situation I've just had with God. The a wonderful conversation. Surely you can see that the Lord can do this. But rather than that, Abram heeded the voice 
of Sarai. <coughs> so then what happens is that Sarai, Abram's wife, takes Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gives her to her husband to be his wife. Now this is a, a difficult thing to wrap your head around. I listened to an atheist. Um, he's got a, this atheist guy. He's got a YouTube channel. And he was commentating on this chapter. As you can imagine, he had plenty of material to really have a go at the Christian religion. And he was emphasizing and re-emphasizing how horrible this was for Hagar, this young Egyptian girl who we all, well, most commentators would accept she was fairly, fairly young, at best in her 20s, getting married to this guy who, as we can see, 86 years old, when she's born, so there's very possibly 60 years between the two people here, Hagar and Abram, possibly even more. That's kind of the expectation, that there's that amount of time between the two. And there's no getting away from it. This is indeed a horrible, horrible situation. Is there anything that we can say to try and make it sound not so bad? Well, Hagar comes into the, the, into the house of, of Abram, as it were, because as we've read, she's an Egyptian. Well, at the end of verse 12, we read this. Not verse 12. Chapter 12, sorry. In verse 16, he says, He treated Abram well, that's Pharaoh, treated Abram well for her sake, that's Sarai. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants. There is Hagar and female donkeys and camels. There she is, Hagar being brought to Abram in amongst all the animals. She's just a good, she's just a, a bit of property going from one hand to the next hand, to Abram's hand. And this is all she is. She is what is what have been called commonly a slave. She's referred to here as a maidservant. And many would say, well, and I was reading the commentaries, and many would say that this was, as it were, a promotion to Hagar. She was going from being a slave to being possibly the joint second in command in the camp alongside Sarai. Or worse, she was third in command, trying to play down the horrendous situation that Hagar was put in. There's clearly no mention of what Hagar is thinking and this, what, what, her, what her thoughts were. She just goes along with it as if that's, that's what's happening. And this is what is concerning to me, is that we try to airbrush the sins of Abraham, of Abram. And we can't do that. One of the things which makes the Bible so authentic is that its heroes are so sinful, are so fallen. When I read history, and I love, I love reading history, earlier on in this year I, I was reading quite a few books on the history of Scotland, and time and time and time again you have the, the, the writer, the historian, caveating their, their, their stories by saying, look, they, they say this amount of people died in this battle, but the reality is they always exaggerate. They say that this guy was this strong, but the reality is they always exaggerate. They say that this person was that good looking, but the reality is they always exaggerate. What people always do throughout history is they try to portray themselves in the best light possible. 
They tried to make their victories sound as big as possible. They tried to make them sound, themselves sound as strong or as beautiful as possible. That's what they do repeatedly throughout history. They did it in Scottish history. They do it in Roman history. They do it in Greek history. They do it in all the histories that you can think of. They're constantly exaggerating how good they are. But you read the Bible, and you read the likes of Abraham, you read the likes of David, and what you read are men who are deeply fallen. You read of men who are deeply sinful and who commit terrible acts. And this is what gives it its authenticity. There are no supernatural men who somehow are able to say no to every temptation. No, there is this consistent falling. One good man after another good man failing and falling into sin and having to suffer the consequences as a result of falling into sin. And this is what we can't ignore. Abram, at best, committed adultery. At worst, he raped Hagar. And there's no way of telling which one he did, but the reality is either one is horrendous. Abram takes Hagar as his wife, but as we see later on in the chapter, his care for her is not there. He has no, there's no part of him which has any care for her at all. Verse 6, after Sarai has, has had a go at him, about how the situation is turned against her. Hagar is now despising Sarai, and she's complaining to Abram. So Abram says to Sarai in verse 6, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, Hagar fled from her presence. A horrible situation. Sarai's bad idea, Abram's bad leadership, now we've got Hagar's bad situation. It's believed that Hagar was able to walk about a week away from the camp. By the spring, it says in verse 7, on the way to Shur, that's estimated that she was on the road for about a week, pregnant, heading back to Egypt, very unsure of our future, and then the angel of the Lord comes to her, and the Lord speaks to her. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress, submit yourself under her hand. Then the, Lord, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so that they shall not be counted for multitude. Verse 13, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees, for she said, have I also seen, here seen him who sees me? You see, the Lord sees every horrible situation. He saw the horrible idea that Sarai had. He, he, he saw Abram's lack of leadership, and now he sees the terrible situation that Hagar is in. And he meets her where she is, and she says, come, come back. I will bless you. Your descendants will multiply exceedingly. I will bless you. I'm not holding this against you. I will bless you. And this is one of the beautiful things about 
our God is regardless of your situation, your station in life, regardless of how horrible the circumstances you may be in, the Lord sees. The Lord knows. He knows what's gone before. He knows what's going before you as well. And it is with seeing you that He still offers out His hand to you and says, here is the way. Here is an option. Walk with me in it. Come back with me. I will look after you. I will care for you. The Lord has an answer for every situation. But then we've got a final character who we're going to be introduced to at the end of this chapter. This character, Ishmael. We read this in verse 11 and verse 12. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. What is amazing to me in this kind of thinking back to what John said last week about chapter 15 being one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. This chapter has had incredible implications right throughout the generations. The birth of Ishmael has had incredible practical implications. Ishmael became the father, or is the father, of the Arab people. The next son that Abraham was to have, Isaac, is the father of the Jewish people. And it's these lines here, he shall be a wild man, his hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. If you just take into consideration the situation between the Jewish people and the Arabs and the conflict that has gone on, you read your Bible from here and you just read situation after situation, war after war that takes place between the Israelites and the Arab people. You get beyond the Bible. You arrive at Muhammad, the, the prophet for Islam, and his hatred for the Jewish people. He even said, the day of judgment will not come until we kill the Jews. They will hide behind trees and stones, and they, the trees and stones will cry out saying, I've got a Jew here, come and kill him. And that was how horrible, that was how hard he hated the Jewish people. Now, I have to caveat and say that many British, many Western Muslims would say that that's not the right interpretation of it. But then again, you go to many of your Islamic countries and they'll say that's exactly the interpretation of it. The Jewish people need to be destroyed. And right throughout the generations, right up to 2021, you still have the Israeli and Arab conflict going as strong as ever. His hand shall be against every man. How often do we read of an Arab, a Muslim man, blowing himself up in Australia, or in Russia, or here in the UK, or over in America? The prophecy upon the line of Ishmael has been proven time and time again. 
just in my lifetime, never mind the history of the world. And this is what's happened, is we've got a generational sin that's taken place, is that what Abram did with Hagar has had consequences for generation after generation after generation after generation. And on a much smaller scale, to bring it here, to bring it home to us here this evening, is that marriage is incredibly important. Sex is very important. They're not things to be trifled with. They're not things to be done at a whim. They're incredibly important things that have huge consequences if they're not done properly. We have an epidemic, or forget that, a pandemic across this world of relationships that are broken and the children that are, have been a result of those relationships are now suffering the consequences of parents that don't just love each other anymore. And the sad thing is that even when you have a, a parent that is clearly wrong and a parent that is clearly right, and it's very clear both parties are willing to accept both the responsibilities in the situation, that even in that, when a relationship like that breaks down, the effect it can have on the children is so deep that it can impact not just that generation, but the generation afterwards, the generation afterwards. Next to chapter 20, verse 5, we read how when things are done that hate God, the consequences, the punishment will continue for generations. And this is why it is abundantly important that if you're married, you always fight for that marriage. If there's children, you always fight to make sure that you hold things together for them. Because the consequences can last well beyond your lifetime. And this is what we see here. This is the great lesson that your sin can last for generations. And it doesn't have to just be adultery. It can be 101 other things. A lack of patience, like we heard this morning. I can't tell you the amount of testimonies that I've heard and that I've read of people that say, well, my, 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 my father was a drunkard, so I was a drunkard. My mother was a drug addict, so I was a drug addict. My father was a gambler, so I was a gambler. My mother slept around, so I slept around. It just goes from one generation to the next. Unless God moves. Unless God steps in to the breach. And so this is one of the things that I would encourage us all to search our hearts on is that other sins which we have committed, which our children or our grandchildren or other children have witnessed and it's impacted them, now is the time to seek forgiveness. Now is the time to get right. Because it could 
impact generations to come. This evening, you're in a a gospel-preaching church. So the good news is that we don't just stop at the talk of sin. Because there is a way. There is a way that you can rise above the sin that has affected you and so many as around you so badly for so long. The Lord Jesus Christ urges you this evening to come. He sees you, as we've already seen in our chapter. He sees you. He knows every corner of your mind. He knows every action that you've committed. He knows every word that you've said. And despite knowing everything about you, He still offers you the way of hope, a way of salvation. And I'm very aware that I stand here I was brought up in a Christian home. The hand of God has been so good to me in my life. I kept myself for my wife. My wife kept herself for me. We've done things properly. We've done things right. I know I am blessed. And I know there's many people that have not been given the privileges that I have been given. But what I also know is that the blessings and the joys and the, the good things that I have in my life, they're not enough to save me. And so where I am and where you may be this evening, before God, we're in exactly the same place. We cannot, we cannot make ourselves right before Him. There's nothing that I can know, there's nothing that I can do, nothing that I can say that can justify myself before God, and neither can you. It was described, I was listening to a, a minister this week, and he put it, put it so beautifully. He says, the thief on the cross gets to heaven's gates. And as he arrives at heaven's gates, he's met by an angel, and the angel says, so why are you here? Have your sins been forgiven? And the man said, and the thief that was on the cross said, I, I don't know, have they been forgiven? And the angel looked at him confused and said, well, sh- sh- surely you know. I don't, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And the angel looked at him confused and was, right, okay, that's, I didn't expect that. Well, um, well, uh, okay, well, I, I, I'm, going to sh- I'm just going to get my supervisor. So he runs back into heaven, and the supervisor appears, and he says, look, we just need to clear something up very quickly. Do you understand the doctrine of justification? And the man went, the doctor of who? He said, well, okay, let's, let's get really basic. Do you know your Bible? He says, no. I don't know my Bible. And the supervisor looks at me and says, so what basis are you here? And the man said, the middle man on the cross said I could come. Regardless of your situation this evening, The Lord Jesus Christ says to you tonight, you can come. You can experience salvation full and free. And so I urge you tonight, though your sins, they may be many, His mercy is more. Bow the knee 
surrender. Give over to the Lord Jesus Christ. When situations get desperate, pray. When bad ideas come up, speak up. Stand for the truth of God. When horrible situations occur in your life, know that God sees. He's there in the midst of it. He's there right alongside you. And yes, there may be sins that you've committed, but the consequences will last for generations. But tonight, the message of the gospel has come. Know His grace. Know His love. And you'll be able to sing with us, my hope I cannot measure. My path to life is free. Amen. Amen.
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Thank you. 